Welcome to the Inside Scoop Live podcast, where indie authors get personal about their books, their writing, and their passions. I'm your host, Sherry Hoyt. Join me for some lively conversations with debut indie authors and seasoned veterans alike. It's a great place to find your next amazing read or even get inspired. So sit back and enjoy the show and let me know what you think. Hi, everyone. Today, Jacqueline Greer Graham is with us to talk about her debut book and memoir, Almost Full Circle, From Montserrat to Canada and Backish. Jacqueline is a born storyteller, and you're really in for a treat today. But before we get started, here is the inside scoop on the author. Jacqueline Greer Graham is a Canadian citizen who was born in Montserrat in the British West Indies. She has a bachelor's degree in computer science from York University and a medical office and laboratory assisting diploma from Career Canada College. Jacqueline is a former manager at the Canadian Institute for Health Information, and she is now a business owner pursuing her passion for telling stories. Jacqueline enjoys singing and dancing and is a health and fitness enthusiast. She lives in Ontario, Canada, and has two children. To learn more about Jacqueline and her work, visit her website at JacquelineGreerGraham.com. Well, hi, Jacqueline. Welcome to Inside Scoop Live. Well, thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be on the program. Oh, absolutely. Now, first of all, congratulations on publishing your debut book, Almost Full Circle, from Montserrat to Canada and Backish. I love that. What is it about and what inspired you to write it? Well, thank you very much. Let me start with the second part of your question, which is what inspired me to write my book. So I've been telling stories for most of my life. I didn't describe myself as a storyteller until recently, but storytelling is definitely you know, what I've been doing, whether it's sharing stories with people that I meet about growing up in, in Montserrat and immigrating to Canada or telling stories to my children as they were growing up. Mm. I just love telling stories. And so uh, when I shared stories with people, some of them told me that I should write a book. Uh, and when I first heard that, I was surprised, you know, because I thought my stories were, were normal, you know, <laughs> so I didn't see the point in, in writing a book. But for some people, uh, my stories weren't normal. And I get it. I, I appreciate that now. Yeah. For example, you know, when my great-grandmother passed away, you know, my family prepared her body for burial in our house. And then they brought the casket into the living room and placed her body in it. And they did a ritual that involved lifting me and other children over her casket. And that was to prevent her from coming back to haunt us. So apparently this isn't a normal practice in <laughs> Canada. <laughs> Most people didn't experience this when they were, when they were children. So I, I understand uh, that there are definitely yeah, parts of my stories that are not normal. Anyways, I didn't consider writing my story at all. You know, I did start to write another book a few years ago. Mm. Uh, it's an inspirational book about love. And, you know, I, I thought that that would be my debut book. And then enter COVID-19. And mm. my goodness, all of our lives, you know, were turned upside down in a short period of time. And it really changed my focus and, you know, reminded me of how quickly things can change. But I started talking to my mother about a few things. And I asked her, you know, to tell me more about our relatives who passed away. Because, you know, I'm interested in hearing stories. Yeah. Um, so, for example, my great-grandmother, 
was likely the child of freed enslaved people. So I wondered what stories she had passed on to our relatives. And my mother said, well, you know, uh, we didn't talk about those things. You know, we didn't ask questions. So that struck me because I realized that many of our stories were buried with our deceased relatives. And so I decided that I wasn't going to let that happen to my story. I decided to write my story, at least for my children. And, you know, if other people can benefit from it, then fantastic. So during the pandemic uh, lockdown, you know, everyone at the organization where I worked transitioned to working from home. We were, you know, fortunate to be able to do that. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we didn't have to commute. And of course, we were in lockdown, so we, we didn't go out, you know, except for essential things you know for many of us the most exciting part of our weeks was going to the grocery store <laughs> you know so so we had some extra time and I took the opportunity to start writing my story and before you knew it I had a manuscript so you know to answer the first part of your question what is it about well it's about my journey from Montserrat to Canada and back sort of ish <laughs> it's a story about home you know, an identity and culture. Like most people, I've had a number of homes over time, but there's something special about my first home in, in Harris's, uh, where I lived with my grandmother, whom I called Mama. So I lived with her until I was 10 years old. And that's because my mother immigrated to Canada when I was two and a half years old. And she came on an immigration scheme that was geared to single people. So she couldn't take me with her, mm. uh, but she could sponsor me once she was settled in Canada. Uh, and of course, that was the case for many children in the Caribbean at the time. And as for my father, I was told that he was dead. So my grandmother was my primary caregiver. And as I grew up in Harris's under her care, uh, my experiences, some of which were very defining, helped shape my identity. Uh, we didn't have a lot of material possessions, but we had everything that we needed. We had food, we had community, we had education, healthcare, and we just made the most of what we had. So I, I included many of my uh, experiences in my book in a very immersive storytelling way, as well as stories about uh, Montserrat's history and Montserrat's culture. And I also included my experiences growing up in Canada once I immigrated there. And then I also wrote about my journey home to Montserrat after the, the Sufria Hills volcano uh, erupted there and completely devastated and transformed uh, parts of Montserrat, uh, including my, my village, Harris's. Yeah. So I thought I could go home anytime, you know, but of course the volcano had other plans. So I learned a big lesson. You, you just never know when and how things are going to change. So you really can't uh, take things and people for granted. Yeah, yeah. And I love that you mentioned that because uh, while I was reading, you know, I could feel your love of storytelling. And I, I mentioned this in my review, it reminded me of the way my grandmother told mm. stories to me. Yes. And, you know, at that time, as she was telling her stories to me, I was too young, I didn't get any of that. I didn't write it down. And, and now mm. I'm struck with, oh, my goodness, the stories that she had and took with her. So yes. I love that you wrote your book for your children mostly, but it just, you know, it's a, it's a piece of history too. And I love the way that you're keeping your experiences alive through your book. 
Yes, thank you. Yeah, and I do hear that from other people that, you know, they have stories as well that are lost, buried with their relatives, and they wish that they could have documented it. So I always encourage people to, yeah, write your story, because then you don't want to repeat that for the next generation. You don't want to lose your story for the next generation. So yeah. Now you talked a little bit about this. And, you know, readers want to be engaged. And, and I think even when reading a memoir, they want to be engaged or informed or both. And the way you wrote your story really brought the readers into the experience. How did you challenge yourself to transform your events into such an, an entertaining narrative? Yeah, so I'll give two examples. So firstly, one of my objectives was to include humor uh, in my book because I love to laugh. And Mm. I think humor is uh, very therapeutic. You know, I have great admiration for comedians. I think they have a special gift (laughs) of helping us laugh through difficult and painful situations. Um, And of course, there are studies that have looked at the positive uh, physiological and psychological effects of, of laughter. So I really wanted to Uh, include humor. And I've always thought that there were some absurd and funny parts of my story. And even the parts that are a little dark, I wanted to find the humor if possible. Mm. So that was one of the things I wanted to, uh, to include. And then the second thing that I did was I used this voice that I wasn't even aware of when I was writing my book. Uh, It was actually one of my editors, Christine Gordon Manley, who brought it to my attention. So some people call it my tour guide voice. And I think in your review, you mentioned that I wrote uh, my story as a travel log. Yeah. Uh, So it's that let's go over here voice that follow me down (laughs) to the river, you know, and now we'll turn right and head to the market. So that voice, but it was actually a solution to a writing problem that I had. Uh, in that I was trying to write in chronological order, but I couldn't remember how old I was for some of my experiences. Mm. So I was struggling with the flow, you know, and then I thought about it. And I remember that, you know, when I tell people stories about growing up in my village in Montserrat, in my mind, I'm taking a mental walk down roads and up hills and to this house and to that store. And I thought, well, you know, why don't I use location or geography instead of chronology to tell uh, some of the stories? And Mm. so that's what I did. So overall, the book is in chronological order, but there are stories uh, embedded that don't follow chronology. They are, you know, more based on, on geography. And so it allowed me to use creativity to take users on this immersive imaginary tour. So so when I sent my manuscript for sample editing uh, to decide on an editor, uh, Christine Gordon Manley did a sample edit for me. So for those who are not familiar with this, sample editing is when you send sample pages of your manuscript uh, to a few editors so you can get a sense of their editing style and then choose the editor whose style uh, you like. Mm -hmm. So uh, Christine edited the first 20 pages of my manuscript, which ended at the beginning of chapter three. And when I reviewed her edits, one of the things that struck me was a note that she included about my storytelling voice. She said, uh, the voice is in chapters two and three, uh, but it's not in chapter one. And she said she's not sure if this is my dominant storytelling voice because she didn't have the rest of my manuscript. But she said it could be. So I may want to incorporate that voice in chapter one. Mm. Now, 
I didn't even realize that I was writing in a voice. You know, <laughs> I, I had I had included that voice in about seven chapters where I was struggling with chronology, as I mentioned. Uh, so it was more about necessity being the mother of invention. You know, we draw on creativity or innovation when we encounter challenges. So I had a problem and I found a solution. So now, you know, after getting that note from Christine and ultimately choosing her as one of my editors, I decided to incorporate the voice into the other chapters, especially for my experiences in Canada. But I didn't like it. It didn't work for me. I didn't like the voice for my experiences in Canada. Huh. And when, when Christine did the official edit of my manuscript, she agreed that the voice didn't uh, work as well uh, for Canada. So she said, you know, it was my decision whether to leave it as is or reserve the voice for my Montserrat experiences. So in the end, I decided to use the voice uh, mostly for Montserrat, but I did find uh, some parts of my story in Canada where I could incorporate it and keep things consistent from a voice perspective. Yeah, yeah. Well, and that was great feedback early on from your editor, because that probably changed the the course of your story a little bit. Mm -hmm. That's what I was going to ask you about. You know, you were reliving a lot of events from some early years. I can't remember anything from a certain age back, you know. (laughs) So Mm -hmm. I'm always impressed when I read memoir and see how authors recreate those memories. How did you write your book? Did you just start writing down a bunch of stories and then organize it? How did your book come together? You know, it was surprisingly easy for me to recall and write my stories because I've been telling them for years, Mm -hmm. as I mentioned, which is probably why I'm able to remember them so well. Mm -hmm. And especially those experiences that occurred when I was uh, 10 years old or or younger, as you mentioned, some of the stories that are included are some that I, you know, I wouldn't mind forgetting. But yeah, I just started writing and they just flowed and flowed. And then once I had, you know, written a few, I started realizing, oh, there's sort of this pattern and sequence and, you know, some of them are connected. And so I started organizing them. Uh, and before you know it, you know, I was creating, you know, sections and chapters and, and so on. So some of the stories are unfortunate encounters with pedophiles, whom I call rats mm. of the humankind, because when I thought about it, I thought, yeah, they're opportunistic like rats. And, you know, they're also predatory like snakes, but I chose the term um, rats of the humankind to describe them. It just seemed like, you know, an easy one to sort of tag to them and remember. Yeah. But one encounter uh, in particular that I had with one of those rats was by far the hardest part of my story to write. Um, probably because it's the experience in which I felt the most violated and, and had the least amount of control. So it was one of the last things that I wrote. And then once I wrote it, it was one of the sections of my manuscript that I edited the least. I mm. would just skip right over that section each time, you know, I edited the chapter. So mm-hmm. in the end, you know, I, I may have revisited that section once or twice before uh, sending my manuscript for editing. And I thought I would get a lot of notes on that section, but I didn't. I didn't get any notes at all, except for my editor, you know, simply saying that I'm sorry you had to go through this and you know, thanks for being brave and and sharing your story. So yeah, maybe if I had read it more, I may have been tempted to exclude it. Mm. But um, I wanted to include it because, you know, it was part of my story, but it also helps to provide context 
for other events in my life uh, that I included in the book. And you know what? It, it may help someone else come to terms with their experiences. So I, I left it. And then in terms of my memory, you know, I've had conversations with people who lived in Harris's up until the volcano uh, erupted. And they were surprised by how much I remember and how accurate my memory is. And I really attribute that uh, to the storytelling that I've done over the years and the fact that certain memories of home will always be in my heart and mind. I think you mentioned in your review that, you know, we may root ourselves in, in many places over the course of our lives, but it's often our first memories of home that pull on our heartstrings. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Can you share one of your favorite memories with us of your time in Montserrat? Oh my goodness, I have so many. <laughs> You know, like, you know, I was a picky eater, you know, so there were certain foods that I didn't like, but there were some that I enjoyed, like goat water. Oh, my goodness. It's like an Irish stew. Ooh, it is delicious. So I loved eating or drinking, I guess, goat water. Um, I love mangoes, especially Julie mangoes. You know, we could walk by a mango tree and get nice, ripe mangoes that had fallen from the tree. Oh, wow. uh, or throw stones at the mangoes sometimes to get them to fall. So... You know, that was a lot of fun. Uh, Johnny cakes, you know, which were fried uh, dumplings and sugar cakes, which were made from uh, coconut and sugar. Well, you know what? I like any sugary treat, to be quite honest. (laughs) And then there was a lady by the name of Miss Phoebe. And she used to bake bread uh, in her outdoor stone oven. And I'd have to go there to buy bread without any money because my grandmother had established a credit system which brought me great embarrassment when I had to buy things on credit. You know, I'd, I'd have to stand in line and then wait my turn. And then once it was my turn, you know, I, w- I would sheepishly say, you know, Miss Phoebe, mom, Mama sent me for bread. And, you know, she said she'll pay you at the end of the month. You know, and then I'll, I'd hold my breath and hope to God that Miss Phoebe wouldn't embarrass me in front of her customers, you know, by complaining that I didn't have any money. And she never did. Yeah. You know, she always gave me the bread. And I guess my grandmother, you know, must have always paid her. Uh, but I loved that bread. Oh, my gosh. It sounds amazing. Now, at 10 years old, you emigrated to Canada to live with your mother. And that feels like such a significant life event. Mm-hmm. What did you find was your greatest adjustment during this period of your life? Mm-hmm. I was very adaptable to change, uh, including adjusting quickly to living in Canada and, and living with my new family. Uh, I think my grandmother prepared me well for that. You know, I had to run all kinds of errands for her. So mm-hmm. even though I was a shy child, I was forced to interact with adults. You know? So I, I got a good um, understanding of people and their behaviors. Uh, and it really helped me to become very independent, very self-sufficient. Plus, my grandmother would always tell me about my mother and remind me that one day she's going to send for me, as we used to say. Mm. Um, and I also corresponded with her through letters. You know, we didn't have a phone back then. Um, we definitely didn't have computers. That was before computers and the internet. So yeah, I felt like I was prepared to make the transition to Canada. Now, my mother had married, and so I knew that I would also meet her husband mm. and uh, my two younger sisters. And even though my grandmother told me that she didn't like my mother's husband, it didn't bother me. You know, I came with an open mind, right? She taught me to be self-reliant, you know, to think for myself. So I came with an open mind, you know. 
And as I mentioned before, it was common back then for parents, especially mothers, to leave their children with their parents and emigrate and establish a better life. And then, you know, they would sponsor their children once they were settled uh, in their new country. Uh, but for many children who were away from their mothers for, for many years, they felt traumatized when they finally reunited with them. And, and many had a hard time adjusting to their new family. So, you know, um, there are positives uh, to immigration, but certainly broken relationships were some of the unintended consequences of some um, immigration schemes. But for me, other than the fact that I didn't recognize my mother when I first saw her at the airport in Toronto, I thought I would because I had pictures of her. So I thought, of course, I would recognize her, but I didn't. didn't recognize her at all. Um, but other than that, I was fine adjusting to, to living with her. The challenge for me was my relationship with her husband, my mm -hmm. stepfather. It would turn out to be the hardest adjustment, not because I wasn't open um, to a relationship, but because he wasn't open to a relationship with me. Mm. Uh, so that relationship didn't start well. Uh, it didn't continue well. And it would um, ultimately implode or explode or one of the plodes. Yeah. You know? So yeah, <laughs> that, that was the hardest and greatest adjustment. Otherwise, I was able to adjust quickly at school and, you know, make friends. I wasn't shocked by snow or the cold. You know, oh, yeah. It bothers me more now than it did when I came to Canada because now I have to shovel it and drive in it. You know, and that isn't always fun. Um, but yeah, as mentioned, the, the, the most challenging thing was was definitely my relationship with my stepfather or lack thereof. Mm, yeah. So let's go like almost full circle now and talk about the day that you heard about the volcano eruption back home in Montserrat. Yeah, it was back in uh, 1995 when the volcano erupted after being dormant for almost 400 years. Mm. Um, and uh, my children, who are twins, they were toddlers uh, at the time. So I was quite busy, as you can imagine, <laughs> you know, and, and I didn't always listen to the news. So I had no idea uh, what was going on. I mean, I didn't even know what was going on in my own backyard, much less my little island right. thousands of kilometers away. So it was my mother um, who told me the news. You know, she told me that uh, Chances Peak erupted, which is one of the mountains in the Sufir Hills uh, mountain range. And it's a mountain that I could see from my house in Harris's. You know, I, I mentioned in the book that it was like a picture on a wall I passed every day and barely noticed. It was just always there, yeah. you know? And I never thought of this mountain as a dormant volcano. You know, so I, I was a little confused when I heard that it had erupted. Yeah, so it was, it was hard to wrap my head around, you know, what I was hearing. And of course, you know, I started tuning into the news and sure enough, there it was, you know, you know our, our little island that most people that I meet had never heard of because it's such a tiny island. And now, you know, it was thrust into the regular news cycle. Yeah. And I remember seeing pictures and, and videos of the eruptions and, you know, some of the damage I saw the ashes that had fallen on the cars and on the buildings and on people. Sometimes people were covered with ashes running, you know, for their lives. It, it was surreal. Yeah. You know, I remember hearing someone say, you know, this is my home and, and I'm not leaving, you know, which I understood. I, I got that. But, you know, it, it, it alarmed me as well because you know, the situation looked really bad. It looked really dangerous. And in fact, some people did lose their lives, you know, during, during one of the eruptions. It was in 
1997, 19 people died because they were in areas that were uh, designated as, as off limit. Oh, wow. You know, someone from, from my village, whom I knew very well, whom I interacted with, you know, when I was a child, died in that eruption. So that was really traumatizing. It, it was really sad to, to hear that and, and hard to imagine. Yeah. You know, and, and then there was, the, you know, all the destruction, like Plymouth, which, which uh, was the capital that we call town. You know, it was destroyed. I used to go to Plymouth. I used to go to the Plymouth markets with my grandmother. You know, that was gone. Other, you know, other buildings were destroyed. The pier, the, you know, the jetty was damaged. A lot of areas in the south of the island, the airport in the east, it was our only airport that was destroyed and the nearby villages as well. And then in 2010, which was when um, the volcano uh, last erupted, sadly, my village was destroyed, you know, and, yeah. and other than the, the loss of lives, that was probably the hardest blow for me. I, I've seen some pictures of the destruction, like the clinic where we used to go to the doctors, some of the churches that I used to attend, some of the houses. Interestingly though, I, I haven't seen any pictures of our house uh, and our property. So mm. I'm, I'm kind of a little bit in denial about whether it was destroyed. Like in my mind, it's all still there, you know, but, but ultimately two thirds of the island was, was designated off limits due to all the destruction and and yeah. the potential for those areas to be impacted by future eruptions. But, you know, thankfully, there hasn't been any eruptions since 2010. Mm. Uh, the volcano is still, is still considered to be active, but it hasn't erupted since then. But then by 2016, I thought, you know, things seemed to be, to be a little bit more stable. You know, people were settling into their new houses uh, in the no northern part of the island. Uh, some people who had evacuated the island had returned. Um, they had built a new airport, there was, there was a new town, a new pier, you know, so things seemed to be somewhat stable, settling down. So I decided that uh, it was time to go home. Yeah. And you took your children with you, right? I did. Yeah. yeah. What did they think about the experience? Oh, my goodness. They, they loved it. You know, I, I, you know, I told them so much about Montserrat, you know, so they were excited to see uh, where I was born, you know. And of course, as I mentioned, uh, my village was destroyed, but, you know, I heard that there were professional tour guides who were taking people there oh, um, wow. with guidance from the, the volcano experts. Well, you know, I planned to go there. I was like, yes, you know, we, can, we can go and see, you know, what, what, um, what's left, you know, and maybe I could, you know, maybe my house is still there. <laughs> um, but you know, I wasn't able to book a tour before uh, going home, but you know, I planned to do so once we got there. So I was nervous, you know, I was excited. Uh, but I was also nervous because I wasn't familiar with the northern uh, part of the island other than a village called Salem, uh, where some of my relatives live. Mm -hmm. I really wasn't familiar with that part of the island. So I really, you know, was wondering if I would be able to find a connection, you know, with that part of the island. Like I would feel like I was home. But I can tell you, I didn't even have to touch down on the island to confirm that I was home. When oh, I wow. saw Montserrat from the air... As we were coming in for a landing, I knew I was home. And when we got off the plane, nothing was familiar. Absolutely nothing <laughs> was familiar. And yet, I felt like I was home. It was just a, a wonderful feeling. So, you know, we got settled into our hotel and, you know, we explored uh, the northern part of the island and we saw the new town. 
Uh, we spent time with friends and relatives. I got to meet some relatives that I hadn't seen in a while, or oh, wow. I didn't even know were my relatives. Of course, we got to enjoy the food, like goat water, of course. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, we participated in, you know, some cultural activities, like, you know, there was a nice parade and there was, there was some calypso competitions and uh, we saw the masquerades. Masquerades is a custom that originated from the Yoruba people in um, Nigeria, West Africa, and it was, you know, brought to the, the Caribbean. And in, in Montserrat, masquerades, you know, would, you know, they would dress up in their colorful costumes and, you know, the leader had a whip and would crack that whip and they would dance and go from house to house. And I was terrified of them. <laughs> but definitely I appreciate them now uh, more as, as an adult. And so I was able to share that with my children, which, which was fantastic. Wonderful. And yeah, um, yeah they, they loved it. They loved it. They claimed that they're monstrous, not just by heritage, but they like to joke around and say that they were born there because it sounds so exotic, you know? Right. <laughs> <laughs> but anyways, we also visited the Montserrat Volcano um, Observatory. It's an observatory that was set up to monitor the volcano. And so we met with the experts who monitor the volcano. And so I asked them about booking uh, a tour to Harris's. And they crushed my dream of going there. Mm. Um, because they strongly advised me not to go. You know, they said there's a chance that the volcano could erupt without warning. And they said there, there is no way that you could outrun an eruption. So yeah. that was really um, quite deflating, quite disappointing. So hence the almost full circle. You know, I couldn't go home to Harris's. I couldn't make that full circle to where I grew up. Right. But, you know, I uh, we did visit other areas of the island that gave me, you know, a lot of hope that, that we'll continue to rebuild and progress. You know, we saw sand mining in progress for so the sand that was created from the volcano eruption and the ashes you know people were mining the sand so that's a very profitable mm. business we saw new land that the volcano eruptions had created so we're getting a little bigger oh wow <laughs> so yeah that's nice and we saw structures that the volcano speared you know like the viewpoint hotel that you know i visited when i was a child that you know that that's still standing so that was great to see um there's also the potential for new uh green energy solutions like you know tapping into the volcano to get uh, geothermal energy there was an uptick in tourism and you know people who had left uh, were coming back people were writing books and, and documentaries about the volcano so there was a lot to be thankful and, and hopeful for yeah. uh, but as I mentioned um, the volcano is still active so I call it the fight that fight for control you know between <laughs> nature and, and humans you know that that fight uh, still continues and yeah and one of the things that I learned is that it's you know of course it's natural for volcanoes to erupt as the earth goes through its cycles but it's likely that they will erupt um, more frequently and with greater force due to the impact of, of climate change so, you know, hopefully we can get our acts together to address our climate crisis, especially the, the bigger, richer countries who are also the biggest polluters. Right. Wow. There, there's so much involved, things that you just wouldn't even think of normally. Exactly. Yeah. So what was one of the most surprising things you learned while writing your book, either about yourself or maybe the writing or publishing process? Well, I would say the most surprising thing um, that I learned about myself is how sure I was about myself as a child. Mm. You know, I was a shy child and an introvert. So, you know, I was usually uncomfortable in, 
in social uh, settings. You know, I didn't want to speak up, you know, if I didn't have to. Uh, <laughs> and as an adult, that shyness doesn't go away, but you learn to manage it better. You know, you learn to be okay with feeling uncomfortable. But I always thought that because I felt uncomfortable and awkward in certain situations, that I wasn't uh, sure of who I was, but not so. Mm. Looking back, you know, I, when I was writing my book, my goodness, I could see that I was so sure of myself and about the things that I was experiencing. And I knew intuitively when someone was trying to manipulate or gaslight me, you know, even if I didn't have the vocabulary uh, to articulate it, I knew in my gut, like, you know, some of the experiences that I mentioned earlier with pedophiles, I knew in my gut, you know, when somebody was trying to, uh, manipulate or gaslight me. So that, yeah, that surprised me the most, how sure I was of myself. I didn't get shyness at all. I mean, maybe a little shyness from new experiences, but I really, I really got the confidence. I saw that clearly. Yeah. Awesome. <laughs> so what do you hope readers take away from reading your book, Almost Full Circle? I think the big takeaway is uh, well, one of them, anyways, is not to take things and people for granted. You know, mm. it's so it's so easy to do. Um, you know, I thought I, I could go home anytime. That home would always be there. You know, and I didn't think I would be in a situation in which I couldn't go home. So yeah, definitely don't take uh, things and people for granted, and that includes our our bigger home, the Earth, right? Because we're in a climate emergency, as I mentioned. And, right. you know, we all have to do our part to take care of our home, right? We already see that sea levels are rising, you know, storms are more violent. I mean, we have the, we have Fiona on the East Coast in Canada and Ian and, you know, and, and, and uh, hitting Florida right now. Um, and, and we see that volcanoes are erupting and, and, and displacing people. So um, as I said in my book, if, if, we, if we ever go to live on Mars one day with the billionaires of the world, you know, <laughs> it should be because we choose to, not because we have to, because we destroyed our only home, right? Right, right. So, yeah, we definitely can't take the Earth for granted and can't take people and things for granted. The other thing is that, you know, I wrote in my story that, you know, readers will see that one of the ways that I handled tough situations was you know, to come up with a plan. Even if it wasn't perfect, I created a plan, you know, and I reached out for help and I started moving in the direction in which I wanted to go. So as I did that, I met people along the way who helped me. You know, I used to think I was so special in that, you know, when I, when I was trying to do certain things, people just showed up to help me. I'm like, wow, I'm <laughs> special. Everybody wants to help me. <laughs> and then I realized, no, it's because I'm, I'm moving on a certain path. I'm walking down a certain path and there are other people who are on that same path and have similar experiences so they can help me and I can help them so you know definitely you know if you're in a tough situation come up with a plan create a plan and start moving in the direction in which you want to go and you'd be surprised you know how much help you'll get along the way and then of course adjust your plan you know if things aren't working the way you expect that you know be flexible and, and adjust your plan as you go. Yeah, yeah. Now, you mentioned early on in the interview that you had started another book, which you thought was going to be your debut book. Mm -hmm. uh, so do you have any plans to revisit that? Or what are your plans for the future as an author? Oh, yeah, definitely. I'll, I'll revisit that. In fact, while I was writing my book, I had ideas for other books, and I parked those ideas in, in separate documents. And mm. I've already started working on three new books. You know? Oh, wow. But, yeah. One is a, <laughs> is, is a fictional book inspired by historical events. 
Another one is a self-help book that includes some of the things that people have sought my advice about. Uh, another one is a children's book. I just, you know, think that we need more children's books. Yeah. Um, and then there might be a part two of my memoir. Uh, you never know. And then, as you mentioned, I started that, that other book. So uh, I'll definitely keep writing that one as well. So yeah, this is definitely the beginning. Oh, wow. That's exciting. Mm-hmm. Now, <laughs> based on your debut experience, what advice would you give to aspiring authors? Well, I would say if you're going to self-publish, create a marketing plan beforehand. That was a big learning for me. Mm. You know, you put a lot of effort into writing and publishing, you know, and then when you release your baby into the world, you think you can say, there you go, world, you are welcome. (laughs) You know, (laughs) and then you can go on your merry way and watch the sales increase, but no, not so fast. You know, especially if you're not well known and even then, absolutely the marketing plan, you know, that includes advertising, getting your book reviewed by professional reviewers like yourself, um, submitting it for awards, you know, establishing an online presence and so on. You know, yeah, definitely your marketing plan is necessary. Yeah, I, I think that is a common misconception. And, you know, one thing good that has come out of the pandemic, I think, is that we're hearing from more voices that may not have written a book, you know, and I love yes. that. I love that. Yes, that's definitely one of the positive things that came from the pandemic. There were a lot of negatives, but there were definitely some positives as well. And more people are are writing their stories, which is fantastic. I think everyone should write their story, even if you don't publish it, you know, write it because you never know who might benefit from it. And certainly it will be therapeutic for you as well. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Jacqueline, do you have anything else you'd like to add today? Well, you know, I'd like to thank you for your thoughtful and touching review of my book. It brought me to tears. It really did. Uh, it was one of the first uh, extensive reviews that I had read, and it was so touching that it, it really brought me to tears. So thank you for that. And, I, and I'd also like to thank everyone who has taken the time to read my book, thank my family and friends for all their encouragement and their support. and. Uh, my editors as well, and anyone who who helped in any way. I'd like to thank them. I'm I'm really grateful for all the support that I've received. I feel like I'm at the Oscars. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I love that. And I love your story. It was an honor to read it. I I really enjoyed it. And, you know, thank you so much for joining me today and, and sharing a little bit more about yourself and your work. I really enjoyed talking with you. Thank you so much for having me. And it was my pleasure speaking with you. Thank you for joining me today for my interview with Jacqueline Greer Graham, author of Almost Full Circle, From Montserrat to Canada and Backish. To learn more about Jacqueline and her work, visit her website at JacquelineGreerGraham.com. And be sure to listen to our other interviews on InsideScoopLive.com.